Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I am joined with Ian Clary once again. And we are back after a relatively long break. Uh, it's probably both our faults. I'll take the blame. I'll take the penalty and substitute myself for Ian here. Uh, I was busy with work. Immune system. <laughs> and my, sorry, oh, yeah. Well, I was sick with work and all this kind of stuff. And I think you are in the midst of a, a teaching schedule. So yeah, we'll probably have heavy. these breaks from time to time. So that means we have to come to Kelvin and cover uh, seven massive chapters, Yeah. Uh, which in effect, we're not really going to do a good job of, but we're going to try to cover them just kind of in a fun, short, easy way and kind of do a little bit of a reset. And then we'll come back to um, the regular reading plan after this. So we're in book three, we're reading chapters one through seven today. And uh, we're going to start, I think, with a quote at the very beginning, right, uh, on yep. uh, union with Christ. So I'll let Ian take over for that, and we'll, we'll discuss afterwards. One of the things I was recently teaching, uh, talking to my students about, we, I did a lecture in my theology class on the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, I kind of wanted to disabuse my students of the notion that, like, the church really only started to care about the Holy Spirit, you know, like after Azusa, the Azusa revival and Pentecostalism, the charismatic movement. And I traced throughout history all these major works in the spirit, like Basil and uh, Owen. And then I and I, I mentioned how B.B. Um, Warfield is the one who referred to Calvin as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And you get like one of the best examples of that right off the bat here in book three. And so I'm just going to read a section just from from the, um, the first very uh, part there, part one. <clears throat> so I'm going to start on the bottom of page 537. And I'll just read a little bit here and then we can just kind of comment on it. Um, so Calvin is talking about here how like the Holy Spirit is the one who actually brings us into union with Christ. And, uh, and he says here, I guess, probably just after, well, I'll start with, uh, with the we also. Uh, he says, we also in turn are said to be engrafted into him, Romans eleven seventeen, and to put on Christ, Galatians three twenty seven. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. It is true that we obtain this by faith. Yet, since we see that not all indiscriminately embrace that communion with Christ, which is offered through the gospel, reason itself teaches us to climb higher and to examine into the secret energy of the Holy Spirit by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. And uh, that's a pretty, pretty like, there's so much going on in that short paragraph there, not even a paragraph, a couple of sentences. Yeah. Um, one, I like the emphasis on reason here, where he's talking about like, Reason is telling me to actually go higher. And then, so by my reason, I'm going to now examine something secret about the Holy Spirit. Um, so he's no, he's no fideist in the sense that, you know, he is, he's got a, 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 a high view of, of human intellectual powers. And he's saying here that, um, you know, the father gives everything to the son, but that's of no benefit to us until we're actually incorporated into the son's body. And that only happens by way of the Holy Spirit. And so like you get like this incredible kind of like Trinitarianism uh, and then this kind of like realness of actually like the church being the body of Christ. It's not, it's, it's, it's beyond metaphor. Um, you know, no wonder that he's describing it here as kind of like this, this secret working of the, of the spirit. Um, I mean, and then he just goes on um, and we could talk more about it, but um, I think that's a great way to start. I like the phrase where he said beyond metaphor. And I think that's pretty important. I think when we say we're the body of Christ or, or whatever, these passages in scripture, the body of Christ in Christ, partakers of Christ, all this kind of language, 
Sometimes we just think, okay, that's cool. We have a, a connection to him. But in, in fact, at the end of this uh, section, he says, to sum up the last sentence, yep. the Holy Spirit is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. M- meaning that the Holy Spirit truly unites us to Christ in a spiritual union. How, whatever that means, it's a real spiritual union and actually then to each other as the body of Christ. So we're all really united to one another in a spiritual way. And by spiritual, I mean like capital S, Holy Spirit. I don't mean, you know, I don't right. know, some esoteric Californian spiritual adventure. Yeah. I used to live in California. I think I'm allowed to say things like that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you went to MacArthur's church, so I don't think you can. <laughs> I don't think I can. Well, actually, John MacArthur often did these <laughs> spiritual journeys. He did, never did. Um, so, anyways, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned to me uh, that it was B.B. Uh, Warfield who called John Calvin uh, the theologian of the spirit or a theologian of the spirit, one of the two anyway. Yep. And I think that's vital because this is one of, the, one of the ways he is, I think. Otherwise, he also is with the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper. But this is so important that when we're united to Christ, there's a triune uniting. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus. And then that uniting to Jesus unites us to all the other believers. And yep. as the body of Christ, we can worship our head and know the Father. Um, it's, it's important. It's, it's not just a mere metaphor. Yeah. And he's, he's speaking when you go right into, uh, the next section in number two there, right off the bat, he's, he's going to try to like explain it. And he says, like, give us a clearer notion. He says, in order to get a clear notion of this matter, so well worth investigating, right? Which is cool. It's like, mm. this, this stuff is like remarkable. And he's like, you really should spend your time here. He says, we must bear in mind that Christ came endowed with the Holy Spirit in a special way. That is to separate us from the world and to gather us unto the hope of the eternal inheritance. And so um, so Christ has this endowment in his human nature, obviously, uh, with the Holy Spirit, which you know happens, I would, I, I'm assuming he's gonna ar- would argue that that happens at his baptism uh, by John in the Jordan. And, uh, and so the whole purpose of this is that we then, are actually made different than the rest of the world. It's it, this idea of separation is really like sanctification language, right? Where we're being set apart to holiness for God's, you know, particular purposes. Because then he calls him right after that. Hence, he is called the spirit of sanctification. And so the spirit, Christ, Christ is endowed with the spirit. We're incorporated into Christ by the spirit. And as such, now we are as the theologians would call it, definitively sanctified. We're made holy as, yeah. because we have to be because Christ in his own human nature is holy and we're incorporated into it. Yeah, he'll, um, he'll later say that um, our repentance is even given to us by participation in Christ. Yeah. We can maybe get into that in a second what that means, but I think it's, it's important. Well, let's just get into it right now, actually. Why sure. not? Yeah, why not? Um, it's a few pages on. By the way, as you're saying all this and he gives these brief comments, I was noting to you before the recording that at least twice in the section that I read, Kelvin says, I love brevity, or I want to be, or this is, he said, I love brevity, then this is a brief textbook, even though yeah. it's like 2,000 pages. Um, but in many ways, it is brief, because he could say so much more here, I suspect, and yet yeah. he, he doesn't. So why doesn't he do that? And I think it's because he's trying to just be as, keep it simple. Yeah, I think, I think he, I think what he does is he gets, he wants to get to the point. Um, a lot of the writers in the, in this period, you know, like his mentor, Martin Butzer from Strasbourg. Uh, you know, would would write like these extended commentaries that go on for multiple volumes. And Calvin would give you one, 
Um, it's because he's not going to deal with all the arguments and everything. He's just going to give you the goods. And I think that's why. And I, and I, and I, my guess is that like this extended discussion that he has on faith, he just sees as remarkably important that he right. really needs to kind of spend a lot of time, you know, looking at what Bernard of Clairvaux or whoever says about faith and that sort of thing. And it's interesting. I think he wants to say that faith precedes repentance, which is pretty important for him. Mm hmm and but the giving of faith is something that's done by by the spirit right he says yeah, faith is okay. the principal work of the holy spirit like that's that's what the spirit does in us is grant us this faith by which all this stuff can happen so he even said it's like he unites himself to us by the spirit alone um you know that that that's the work that he does hmm. what's interesting on page 601 which is chapter 3 section 9 he makes this really interesting uh, statement uh, he says, therefore, in a word, I interpret repentance as regeneration, whose sole end is to restore in us the image of God that had been disfigured and all but obliterated through Adam's transgression. So what he's saying here is that repentance is re regeneration. They're the same thing. They're the same idea. Yeah. Which I think is foreign to us um, because we think of regeneration as the sort of preceding act that's before sometimes before faith and it just changes our nature and then it's kind of done in a sense but for him regeneration or repentance is the thing that follows from faith and it constitutes our entire life yeah i mean some of the puritans at least one of them i can that's in my mind talks about repentance as like a lifelong thing sure where i think in our sometimes in our circles at least we think of regeneration and even repentance as like an initial push and then we just live by faith and we're, we're kind of mm -hmm. done um tell me why this is different ian what's the <laughs> distinguish it for me what what's going on here well what he's doing is he's grounding it all also in the image of god and the the, the restoration of the image which happens again because of our incorporation to christ who's the true image right so that's where he's like quoting colossians three ten, putting on the new man right which is repentance language uh, who is being renewed into the knowledge and the image of him who created him. And so it's, it's, it's something that's like an ongoing process in this life, right? It's the, it's, it's, you've not put on, it's putting on. Hmm. And, uh, and so we're, it's something that we're sort of like, he says right after that Colossians 3.10 quote, um, he says, accordingly, we are restored by this regeneration through the benefit of Christ into the righteousness of God. Um, and so we, he's saying we've had this fall and now we're being brought back into this kind of like the fullness of this, this image. If you go to the next sentence and the one after it, I, I love this. It says, and indeed, this restoration does not take place in one moment. Nope. Or indeed one day or one year, but through continual and sometimes even slow advances, God wipes out in his elect the corruptions of the flesh, cleanses them of guilt, consecrates them to himself as temples renewing all their minds to true purity they may practice repentance throughout their lives and know that this warfare will only end will end only at death yeah that's awesome so that to me is i think the missing element in some of our evangelical discussions about growth or sanctification um in fact we use sanctification exclusively uh, calvin doesn't actually right Regeneration, repentance are kind of the same, similar idea to sanctification. Yeah. In, in, you know, maybe they're more broader senses. And uh, I kind of wonder, I mean, it, 
the way that scripture speaks sometimes, I think it is broader than our sometimes technical language we use today. And, and maybe he's getting a bit closer to it. I sometimes wonder, this is just sort of off the top of my head, and, you know, um, we, the Reformed tradition especially gave us, with Reformed scholasticism, and even the scholastics, you know, medieval scholastics, gave us all sorts of distinctions hmm. that you really have to like hold in their wholeness. And then certain parts of those distinctions get left behind and others just kind of keep on. And so we, we have like parts of, of theological distinctions that stay with us, but we forget that those, those people were trying to like incorporate the whole biblical witness of things. Like mm -hmm. even if you just take the idea of like the distinctions between definitive sanctification, progressive sanctification and final sanctification, we tend in our day to think of just progress of sanctification without actually looking at how the Bible actually speaks of it as like the spirit actually taking you and incorporating you in a definitive way that's now going to push you through the Christian life. But there's a definitive element to it and we, we sort of forget about it. Um, but I just think here, he's just like feeding your soul this language. I mean, this is just yes. like, in fact, much of this, this, this whole reading that we've had to do is incredibly pastoral um, and comforting, you know, well, that's a good point, because it's comforting, too, when he gets to, uh, he's talking about penance, I believe. I'm trying to, I'm going to look for the page there. Yeah, kind because, of a funny, an interesting a view that you would not suspect in terms of penance. <laughs> well, he gets to the point where he's, he's trying to, like, really comfort people and say they don't have to be too hard on themselves. And it's just this weird, like, soft side of Kelvin. I think, I wrote on the margin, like, the soft side of Kelvin. <laughs> I was like, okay. But you're right. I think he is writing as a pastor a little, um. It is a theology work. It is a summary, but he's also written as a pastor. I think you can see it. He's a pastor writing to pastors. Forget that. Yeah. Like um, I, I took a lot. I don't know about like on page 561. So moving back, he talks about, he gives this whole discussion of like the certainty of faith, uh, mm -hmm. to quote a book by Bovink. And, uh, and so he'll say things like um, right at the beginning of five, on 560 on uh, the beginning of, of number 15 there, he says, uh, we add the word sure and firm in order to express more solid constancy and persuasion. Whereas faith is not content with a doubtful and changeable opinion. Uh, so it is not content with an obscure and confused conception, but requires full and fixed certainty, such as men are wont to have from things experienced and provided. So he's saying, listen, like to have like properly functioning faith, it really can't sit side by side with, with like, uncertainty hmm. then he goes on and talks about like the nature of doubt on page 561 there and that kind of par middle part of that paragraph and it's something like it's very beautiful like comforting language um hmm. for any of us that, that that have struggles with doubt and uncertainty he says among themselves they ponder that it is indeed great and abundant shed upon many available and ready for all um this idea of, of faith and, and the access to god uh, and his mercy uh, he says, but that it, it is uncertain whether it will even come to them or rather whether they will come to it. This reasoning, when it stops in mid-course, is only half. Therefore, it does not so much strengthen the spirit and secure tranquility as trouble it with uneasy doubting. But there's a far different feeling of full assurance that in the scriptures is always attributed to faith. So he's saying, like, there are people out there, and I mean, I've gone through this, where, like, yes, I believe that this is true. I believe the gospel is true. I believe all the mercies of God and Christ are true. For everybody else but not me and he's saying that that's like the kind of root of doubt and then and to have a really insightful is, thing that i guess you just said but kelvin said yeah that we can think and, that way you're right and he's saying here that that like what faith really should do is 
as he goes on, he talks about like how it gives us this boldness. So he quotes Paul in, in, in Ephesians 3, through Christ, we have boldness and access, confidence, which is through faith in him. So we have, I actually, when I'm doubting, I actually have the boldness to have faith. Like it's, it's something I can actually step into. And then he says, by these words, he obviously shows that there's no right faith except when we dare with tranquil hearts to stand in God's sight. This boldness arises only out of a sure confidence in divine benevolence and salvation. Uh, this is so true that the word faith is very often used for confidence. And uh, I don't know, it's just like, it, it, it adds a whole new depth um, to what faith, what our Christian faith should really look like in the midst of our, of our doubts. And mm. the way he says it, it's like he knows what he's talking about. about doubt, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think Calvin gives very little about his, personal life in his work. I think just in the preface to this, to the Psalms commentary, maybe like that's about it. The letter in the letters, in the letters, in letters, you'll get more of him, but yeah, I, when he, on anything, uh, published, um, yeah. for public consumption, he says very little about himself. When you read his letters, he says a lot. <laughs> Does he? Okay. Yeah. yeah so it, it's interesting though. I think most of us, we don't feel like we know Kelvin, the person <laughs> just seems mm-hmm. to be kind of a, a guy on a, on a, you know, as a statue on a wall in Geneva. <laughs> yeah. Right. On, on page 610. So with somebody taking a picture of him. Yeah, someone picture of the, the yeah, yeah. On page 610, uh, this is that line that I thought was really interesting. So he's talking about, looks like spiritual exercises. And in the last paragraph, right before section 17, so it's in section 16, he says, that, he says this, um, the old writers often mention exercises of the sort when they discuss the fruits of repentance. But although they do not place the force of repentance in them, my readers, my readers will pardon me if I say what I think, which is interesting. He's like, let me just give my opinion here. Yeah, just a little insertion. A little insertion. It seems to me that they depend too much upon exercises. And if any man will wisely weigh the matter, he'll agree with me. I trust that they have in two respects gone beyond measure. For when they urge so much and, command, and commended with much immoderate praises that bodily discipline, they succeeded in making the people embrace it with greater zeal but they somewhat obscured what ought to have been of far greater importance. He doesn't say, but, you know, maybe love or whatever. Secondly, in inflicting punishments, they were somewhat more rigid than the gentleness of the church would call for, as we shall have occasion to show in another place. I think it's interesting, the gentleness of the church that he adds there. Yeah. Uh, I think, I need to look at this more carefully, but I think maybe he's probably talking about monastic exercises and things like that, but... It's, um, yeah, he's, ta- he's talking because in the previous paragraph, he's just saying how like, you know, there are these these, you know, outward exercises that he describes here that are to promote humility in ourselves. Yeah. Um, and to, t- to tame the flesh and um, and then also to demonstrate repentance. Um, but he says, moreover, they arise from that avenging of which Paul speaks uh, for there are, for these are the characteristics of an afflicted mind to be in squalor, groaning in tears, to flee splendor and any sort of trappings, to depart from all delights. And he who feels what a great evil rebellion of the flesh is seeking every remedy to restrain it. Moreover, he who well considers how serious it is to have run counter to God's justice cannot rest until in his humility he has given glory to God. So mm. like these sorts of things, you're like in this kind of like rage against yourself and, and what you're trying to do is just bring yourself into humility before God. Well, I, at least it kind of lends it to that kind of pastoral tone that we we're talking about. Well, with yeah. that said, uh, we barely covered anything, but I think we should maybe wind our, our, ourselves down here. 
we we did chapters one through seven of book three. Yeah. Next week, which is week twenty on the reading plan, we'll read chapters eight, nine, and ten. And uh, yeah, we're I think we're past halfway uh, of the whole institutes. Yeah. We'll begin to book four soon, which Ian keeps telling me is super exciting. Super exciting! Can't wait to get to chapter twenty. Oh boy! Oh boy! So when we get there, we'll talk about political theology and how to obey and not obey. And I think it'll be the right timing. Vaccines will be coming out and we'll be talking about the magistrate. You're going to have to get a vaccine to fly on a plane and we'll see what happens then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ian. Uh, It was fun. I'll see you next week. Cheers, mate.